All right, microphone. Check, check, check. Here we go. Let's ramble tonight. Let's make it a mess. If everything goes as planned, this will be all over the place. So stay with me. Stay with me. You know how this works. We jump around. Not always sure where it's going, but it tends to get somewhere. So maybe we'll get there. I just want to tell you, your eyes cannot become video cameras. It'll never happen. I don't think. Maybe. Maybe Google or some software company in Silicon Valley can help us out. But our eyes, for the most part, have to remain human eyeballs. We cannot just insert a feature that'll turn them into video cameras. So we have to rely on our eyes taking things in and simply locking in a memory. Somewhere in this brain, we have to lock in memories and we have to tell ourselves, put down the phone. We don't have to record this. I'm talking about myself. I'm not calling out anybody. I know I've seen NBA games. I watch a lot of NBA games and a lot of the fans sitting around the front row and the good seats, they're filming parts of the game. And I always go, why? Just be in the moment. Put the phone down. Nobody's going to want to watch that video. What are you going to show somebody? Here's the first quarter of the Warriors Rockets game. I have it on my iPhone. They'll probably say I already saw it on television. I understand a lot of people taking pictures of the players. That's common. But I've always thought to myself, just enjoy it. Put the phone away. And now, because this new tech era is creating the habits that we all fall into, I find myself wanting to pick up the phone and just film things as a parent. There's a lot of these little moments that feel so special. First steps, first words, first vacations, first experiences. We all want to capture this. But... Are we really in the moment? If you're holding the phone, if you actually need to jump up and get your iPhone or whatever smartphone you have and go and tap photos and tap video and tap the red circle and then point it at the kid, what moment did you get? Now the kid's just going to be conditioned to feel that all moments have to be captured with this device. See, for me personally, I know it's a negative impact. I just know it. I know if I'm just going to try to capture every special moment, then mentally I won't fully be in it. I could be more present if I'm just watching it. What about that novel concept? The way the world functioned for many years without recording everything. And now I fall victim to it. I now reach for my phone and go, oh, she just said, she just said monkey. I got to capture this. Who wants to watch that video? Maybe my wife, perhaps some family members, but really I could just tell them, hey, my daughter said monkey and they go, oh, that's wonderful. But if I do the old crowd around, hey, everybody watch this. And it's a video of a baby saying, monkey, we don't need that. Do we? I'm okay. Knowing that there were zero videos capturing me saying monkey when I was a baby, I'm okay with that. I feel like my kid will be okay with that. Endless videos in the cloud. And I'm now on the cloud, whatever that means. Has anybody really been diving deep into that? When we say, yeah, it's in the cloud. What are we saying? Where's it going? Are we picturing something above us? Just an ether sphere of all of our photos and videos? Where's it going? All right, I have too many questions that can't be answered. Actually, they probably can be answered, but of course, I don't have the attention span to listen. So I have to fight. I have to fight the phone. The other day, I did leave the house without the phone. I did. A full day. At least four hours. And I found myself tapping my pocket. You know, just feeling it. The phantom phone. 
I found myself wanting to Google a bunch of things that I didn't need to Google. So I have reached the point of addiction where now I need an intervention. Now I do, I do need a cold turkey detach, period. I have to prove to myself that I'm still a human without it. I don't want to sound so dramatic, but it's true. I, I now have to prove to myself that I can experience all these moments without taking photos and videos. The younger generation, lost cause. Lost cause. They're so conditioned to film everything and to take photos of everything. That's fine. That, that's the world they'll be in. There still has to be the delineation, though, of my generation, where we fight it a little bit, a little bit. I've even had students film me. Not to try to catch me doing anything, but just, you know, if we're doing a fun activity or if a discussion becomes stimulating. I've had students sneak out the old phone like, oh, I got I to gotta film this moment of the class. No, you don't. And you shouldn't. And you can't because it's against the rules. But what are rules? I mean, I have to enforce classroom rules. But if they don't resonate with the kid, you know, if you say, put your phone away and they truly can't understand why. In their head, it's not stigmatized. That's the big divide between current teachers and students. Students don't feel like it's truly misbehaving to have your phone out. They don't. They're called digital natives. That's the term where they don't know the world before this. They don't. If my students are born in 2003, the first iPhone comes out in 2007. That's the world they know. So to try to tell them, put it away, it sounds old school. Hey, try to exist in this moment without your phone. I can understand the value of that, or at least in my head, there's some value to that. But when you tell a 15, 16, 17, 18 year old that, they don't understand why. Why not? I want to capture this moment. I want to put it on Snapchat. I want to make it my story. This is how they interact. There was a study recently that a lot of these digital natives, I think whatever that means, born in 2002 or 2003 and on, they have an easier time interacting with the screen rather than face-to-face, person-to-person, words-to-words. It's easier for them to tap, 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 tap the screen. That sounds obvious to some, but that's kind of awful when you really think about it. I even hear people nowadays say, yeah, I talked to this guy or I talked to her. I talked to him recently. No, you didn't. You texted. All right, let me get away from that. That's going down a cynical path. Here's where I want to go right now. Here's where we're going. Where are my subway enthusiasts? I'm not talking about transportation. I'm talking about sandwiches. Subway, eat fresh. You know who you are. Some of you think it's gross, but just listen up. We got to talk about it. Some of you think it's pretty good. Some of you go a lot. Others have never really been. You say, if I want a sandwich, I'm going to go elsewhere. Yeah, but there's something about it that brings me in maybe twice a month. So am I a subway enthusiast? Eh, kind of. Just part of my lifestyle now. Twice a month, purposely go to work without any lunch, just so I can make that trip to Subway. And Subway is unlike any other fast food chain because A, I don't even really think it's fast food. I've convinced myself successfully that because they have vegetables in those bins, and you talk about the lowest quality, the lowest grade vegetables on planet Earth, those are at Subway in the bins. When I'm saying lettuce, what is that? When I'm saying tomato, onion, can you think about how cheap this produce is? It's the opposite of the fresh farmer's market organic world. When you go into Subway and you get into the veggie bins, that stuff is probably just synthetic and dyed. It's all probably clear, and then they have a machine. Just clear balls, and then they have a machine to shape those balls into things that look like tomatoes, and then they put dye on them. Those can't be real tomatoes, right? All right, but I still go. I still go to Subway because it's a part of my life. 
and those prices are great. And I can remember when it started. I remember going to Subway for the first time. You remember when you're a kid and you don't really know what's a chain or what's like a mom and pop shop in the neighborhood? The first time I went to Subway, I didn't know. It was just a huge chain. You remember they had the yellow slick booths and the wallpaper of old New York? You remember this? And they used to cut the bread differently. They used to take a wedge out of the top. And they did it with a knife, like a little pumpkin cutter. Take the wedge out of the top and then they'd stuff the bread that way. And then... I'd say 15 years ago, they started letting the employees do the tear, the bread tear, where they only do a little incision. You know, these are sandwich surgeons. And we all watch closely when they start to tear the bread because they could really tear it. And they'll continue making the sandwich. It's up to you. If you think they tore too much, you got to say, ah, ah, nah. Could you use a different, uh, different loaf? Thanks. You kind of tore that up. Yeah, you tore that up. So whereas all other fast food places... There is a true amount to what you receive. Every other fast food place, the quantity, the quality, it's set in stone. It's categorically organized to the point where you don't make any variations. You go to McDonald's, I mean, sure, you could say no onions, no cheese, but it's all the same size bun. It's the same size meat. You know what you're getting into. Wendy's, Burger King, Taco Bell, Arby's, all that stuff. But Subway's a little different. Subway, it's up to the sandwich artist to make it the right sandwich for you. When they get into those big squeeze bottles, those 30 different squeeze bottles full of goo, you don't want them to go overboard. When you say mayo and they just go to town, and you can't see the meat or cheese anymore or any of the condiments because they went so wild with the mayo that you have to say, now scrape it off. What are you doing back there, Leslie? Scrape it off. I'd say 60% of the time I tell them to scrape it off. Even if I say just a little bit of light mayo, they just go to town. And light mustard, and then a little chipotle, salt, pepper, oil. You know, these are too many condiments. I'm putting too much faith in their ability to ration the condiments. But even before that, we know we watch closely. For the few people that get the six inch, I'll never understand that. Why are you getting the six inch? Just get the full sub. What is it, 75 cents more? Get the full 12 inch. And these aren't really 12-inch sandwiches. Give me a ruler. The width, what is the width? Like two and a half inches? So don't be intimidated by 12-inch foot-long sub. They're not that big. Get the 12-inch. But if you don't, they cut it right in front of you. And sometimes that's a big moment for the customer. You know there's a half being cut that's a little bit smaller, and you don't want that. But you wonder, should I speak up? If they cut that loaf and they give me the smaller 6-inch, do I speak up and say, give me the other one? You know what I once saw? I've seen a lot of things at Subway. A lot of things at Subway. I once saw a lady behind the counter start cutting the bread and the guy goes, whoa, 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 how about fresh? And she says, sorry. And she throws that rock hard loaf away and gets a new bread for the guy. From that moment on, I always say, I'll have fresh sourdough or I'll have fresh wheat. I throw that word in. Uh, Yeah, let me get a 12-inch tuna on fresh honey oat. And just insert that word and they'll go to a different tray altogether. You know that big wall of tin trays with all those loaves of bread? If you say fresh, they go to a different part. They go lower. They go lower on the wall of trays. Trust me, you got to say fresh. If you don't, they'll give you that rock hard bread that they made yesterday. I know they will. I know they will. There's a lot of moments where you got to gauge the experience as you go. Are they going to tear the bread? Are they going to give you the small bread? Are they going to give you the old bread? And once you get the bread, do they know how to lay the meat in? 
If you're getting tuna, are they giving you a lot of scoop? And when they smear the tuna, are they tearing the bread? Are they smearing it evenly? I watch them. Like they're supposed to be trained by Guy Fieri. I honestly think these are Michelin chefs back there, and I hold them to such a high standard. When they lay in the cheese, what cheese do you want? Those four slices, those four triangles? You better make them symmetrical. Okay, no overlap. And when you shove it into the oven, toast it? Of course, toast it. Don't just slide it in there with everything going all over the place. Slide it in slowly, okay? Slowly. You know what you're doing. And we've all had good Subway sandwich makers. So we know what it's supposed to be. But nowadays, they're probably going broke. I don't know that. But the way that they are so understaffed and the people that now work at Subways, they lack the finesse. They just don't have the hand skills anymore. And there's not the assembly line. The subway I go to now takes about 20 minutes. If there's two people in front of you, because that's the same person that's going to say, what bread? Give you all the meats, give you all the cheese, give you all the condiments, and then go to the cash register confused. Wait, what was the deal of the day? Wait, how do I use the credit card? Wait, is this cash? I can't do math. It takes a while. It takes a while. There's some interesting things about subway, though. There's some sandwiches that are on a secret menu. If you say to them, I'll have the feast, they give you every single meat. They give you the salami. They give you the roast beef. They give you the turkey. They give you the bologna. They give you every single meat in the house. It's not on the menu. And for my real Subway freaks out there, do you remember the seafood sensation? This was a big sloppy sandwich covered in what they told you was crab. But I googled it. Turns out it's 10% crab, 90% Alaskan pollock. You ever heard of a fish called a pollock? Me either. But that's what you're getting. And just dumped in a bucket of mayo. And stirred around and stirred around. And then they probably throw in some pink dye. And then there you go. This is your fresh crab seafood sensation. And guess what? I used to get it. I did. I did. That's not seafood. But for some reason, I figured, hey, let's live it up. I'm going to go for the seafood sensation at Subway. And then toast it. And it was just gooey and gross. I couldn't tell. Is this the mayo? Is this the American cheese? But that sandwich is now extinct. You can't find the seafood sensation. There's a few secrets, though. The cookies there are oddly really good. The cookies there are better than most fresh-baked cookies you'll ever have. I don't know why. And there's also soup. And if it's broccoli cheddar, get a bag of chips and make it a dip. There you go. These are Subway secrets. Yeah, I don't share these with everybody, but I figured episode 58, why not? Yeah, why not? This is a gift to you. I appreciate you listening to this. So I'll tell you, if their soup is chicken noodle, look the other way. It's disgusting. But if... You stumble upon broccoli cheddar at Subway. Get it. Say I'll have a cup of it. The employee who works behind the counter is going to be stunned because one out of 77,000 people get soup at Subway. But if it's broccoli cheddar, do it. And then get a bag of baked Lay's and boom, there's your appetizer before you jump right in. It's insane to watch other people's sandwich habits. If there's one person ahead of you, you study what they're doing. Some people go there with confidence, like the regulars. Yeah, I'll do an Italian BMT, toast that with pickle lettuce, tomato, a little oil. And it's, that's their sandwich. That's what they get every time. And then some people come in like they've never seen anything like this. I've brought this up in the past, but I once saw a guy, and this is not a joke, I once saw a guy, two in front of me, two in front of me say, um, what's good here? What's good here? Take a look-see. Have you ever had turkey on bread with cheese? It's not an exotic dining experience. Order a fucking sandwich. They're all up on the board with photos next to them. And now the calorie count, so you can know how fat you're going to get. And then the price. So order any. 
And they walked him through it. And he finally went with a sandwich that you should never get. Probably something like the Philly cheesesteak for a limited time only. Remember when they did the Reuben, which wasn't that bad. They once did the chicken enchilada sandwich. Does anybody remember that? Or the chicken parms? They don't do that anymore. These are all extinct. But this guy went with a Philly cheesesteak. And then when it came to the vegetables, he actually said, what else is good here? What? This is called lettuce, tomato, onion, pickle, olive, pepperoni. You got to go. I think they should have a bouncer. I really do. I think Subway now needs a bouncer to tell people like that. You can't hold up the line by asking the employees what's good here. This is not French laundry. It's not Chez Panis. Panis? Panis? I don't know. Kind of says a lot about your personality, though. Whatever sandwich you go with. And your level of confidence while ordering it. And your ability to go with the flow and not hold up traffic. It says a lot about you. I think it reveals your personality. Subway really reveals your personality. And I have convinced myself that it's the healthier alternative to the other fast food places. So I've successfully trained my brain to say, you know what, I'm going to have a healthy little lunch. Go to Subway. And it's not. It's not. My scale has revealed it's not. It's just not healthy. You know how it all began, though? You want to know this? You want the history? Of course you do. The history of Subway. I honestly thought it must have been like the 1980s. Nope. 1965. A guy named Fred DeLuca borrowed $1,000 from a friend. This is not a joke. He wanted to open a little sandwich shop in Bridgeport, Connecticut. He called it Pete's Super Subs. One year later, Fred DeLuca, old Freddie D, who had a vision. He, along with the friend that lent him the $1,000, they formed a company to oversee the expansion of these restaurants. He wanted to make some money from a little sandwich shop to fund his medical school tuition. Guess what, Fred? You don't need medical school. You're going to be a bazillionaire. And it wasn't until the late 60s that they changed the name to Subway and they start to open and open and open. And franchises are being built all around the country. Here's a fact right now, okay? Don't you dare say I almost went the whole day without learning something. There are now currently more Subways in America than McDonald's. I said it. Now, of course, there's more McDonald's throughout the world than Subways, but there are currently more Subways than McDonald's in America. First one on the West Coast, you're wondering? Fresno, California, 1978. So when I went in for the first time, maybe early 90s, because it was my first experience, I thought it was like a new sandwich place, but no. Fred DeLuca, 1965. There's your fun facts for the day. All right, here's now the play it at home version of Here We Go. I'm going to give you four stories right now. Okay, wherever you are listening, Walking a dog, driving your car, sitting in a room, looking at a wall, whatever you're doing. I'm going to give you four stories similar to that. The origins of chains, and one of them is not going to be true. Can you identify? All right, that's the game we're playing here. Stay with me. Rubio's. Do you know about Rubio's? As a San Diego State alum, this is a wonderful story. First of all, Rubio's is the best fish taco. It's not up for a competition. It truly is. It's the OG and their shrimp burritos are just amazing. So Rubio's, I know not many here in Northern California, but if you find one, go in. Founded by Ralph Rubio. Here's the part of the podcast where I brag. I've actually eaten Rubio's with Ralph Rubio. It's a long story. It's a long story. He started it as a little tiny walk-up stand in Mission Bay. He started it. This was a San Diego State student who visited Mexico. Had his first fish taco and he said, we got to bring these to America. Got to bring these north of the border. 
He was on spring break in San Felipe with a bunch of friends. And they encountered fish tacos. And this guy, entrepreneurial mind, he said, yeah, we got to start a little stand. And that stand has expanded. And now Ralph Rubio is a multimillionaire. That's the story of Rubio's from San Diego State to the jackpot. All right. How about this story? Jamba Juice. That's right. At Cal Poly, San Luis Obispo. This was an assignment by a guy named Kirk Perron. He was a cyclist. He had a healthy lifestyle. And apparently he loved smoothies. So he opened up his first store in slow, as they call it. The year was 1990. And Kirk Perron, a student at Cal Poly, started Jamba Juice on his own, a senior project idea to let your classmates and teachers know, hey, here's what happens when I put a bunch of stuff in a blender. Isn't that amazing? What kind of boost do you need? All right, here's the other one. McDonald's. McDonald's goes back to 1940. You wanted food history. Hey, folks, you got it. It was a restaurant owned by a couple of brothers. It was their idea, Richard and Maurice McDonald, in San Bernardino, California. Southern Cali, back then, they had the Golden Arches. They turned the company into a franchise. Famous logo, the big M. And then in 1955, a fella by the name of Ray Kroc. If you saw the founder, played by Michael Keaton, Ray Kroc, they make him look like a real asshole. Was he? I don't know. I never met him. And whenever you watch a biopic, you wonder, is this true? Is it not? Is it the way Michael Keaton's playing him? Is it word of mouth? Is it bias? I don't know. But I thought the movie was kind of boring as well. Some people liked it. Not me. So Ray Kroc, a tycoon, a businessman, cutthroat mind. He joined the company as a franchise agent, and then he proceeded to purchase the chain from the McDonald's brothers and lowball them. Then he bought out their equity, and yada, 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 those guys got screwed most people associate McDonald's with Ray Kroc. But his name is Kroc. It's not McDonald. Oh, yeah, the McDonald's brothers. They got screwed. Oh, and then how about this? The history of Schnitzel. 12-year-old Curtis Pulowski. He was at his grandpa's house, his grandfather's house in Myrtle Beach. And they had a big A-frame design house. And the house was painted red and yellow uh, because they wanted to support the Atlanta Hawks. They loved the Hawks. And one night, young Curtis Poplowski, or what did I say, Pulowski, Popolowski, he woke up hungry in the middle of the night, and he didn't really know the layout of the house, so he went to the garage. He knew there was one fridge in his grandparents' garage, and he goes to his grandparents' fridge garage. We all know those families that had a fridge in their garage, in addition to the fridge in the kitchen. And little Curtis goes in, and there's just one hot dog left, one Frank. There's Denison's chili in a can right there. Half a can. They already fed the other half to the dog. And Easy Cheese. You ever seen that? Easy Cheese? Looks like it's hairspray, but it's cheese. He put them all together in the dark, and he loved it. And then Curtis went to college, and he joined a frat. And he created the first Wiener Schnitzel drive through in the backyard of the frat house. And he shaped the chain like his grandparents' beach house. Which one of those was not true? I'll never tell. It's up to you. Go ahead. You debate. Rubio's? San Diego State, Jamba Juice, Cal Poly, McDonald's, the brothers in San Bernardino, or Curtis Papa Poplowski at his grandparents' house when he went to his grandpa's fridge and he found a old hot dog in the middle. Of the Actually, of course that's not true. But have you been to Wiener Schnitzel? Why isn't there one around me? This place is phenomenal. So unhealthy, so good. I once worked with a guy who brought in Wiener Schnitzel at least once a week. He would lick the paper. He would lick the cheese. He couldn't get enough. He would lick the paper. 
No drops of easy cheese left behind. Oh, no, no, no. All right, are you in the mood for any of that right now? Are you, like, craving any of those foods or thinking I'll never eat those again? I've definitely reached an age where food dictates my mood. If I eat healthy, I eat well. All the buzzwords, cage-free, grass-fed, organic. I feel good. But then that little voice inside me says, get that deep-fried food. Get that fast food. Get it. So I'd say I give in maybe four times a month. And it's always regrettable. It's always. As you age, as you get older, your body just is going to reject it more. This just became a nutrition podcast. So what you want to do is lay out seven meals for the week. All colorful meals. You want greens, you want reds, and you want me to stop. Okay, did you see this in San Francisco? One of the greatest places is closing. One of the places that created the fabric of my existence, the punchline. The punchline on battery is closing. Here's how I know it's a big deal. It's a small room. It's in the financial district. The punchline, they don't even get the top acts anymore. The biggest comedians, they now go to Cobbs in... North Beach, but Dave Chappelle, who I would argue is the number one name in comedy, he came to San Francisco this past week, and he's on the steps of City Hall, and there's an unannounced press conference. Dave's just talking into a microphone, and a lot of people just walking by realize, wait, that's Dave Chappelle talking into a microphone. No press releases sent out, but Dave just wanted to tell people, we got to save the punchline. How cool is this guy? You know, he was surrounded with a few other fellow comics, some Bay Area comics. They were just on the stairs saying, let's save the punchline. I think Google's trying to buy it out or Merrill Lynch. I can't remember. But it's an interesting story of how the punchline tried and tried to maintain that space as an entertainment venue, something in the city ordinances where they were able to survive, but they just couldn't anymore. So they were looking for a new location, but shutting down. Is it temporarily shutting down or permanently? I don't know. But that is a sacred place for comics. I mean, you're talking about Robin Williams and Dana Carvey, Patton Oswalt, some of the greats cut their teeth there. And Chappelle even said, I've had some of the greatest sets of my life. I've had some of the greatest moments of my life on that little stage. And that little stage, not much has changed. Same room, great wait staff. A great waitstaff that's very quiet when they bring you your drinks. That's the key to a good waitstaff at a comedy club. Get in, get out. Duck. Kneel when you take an order so you're not blocking the view of the other people in the club. And the punchline, I believe, at least it used to be 18 and up. Of course, 21 up to drink. But not only did I grow up with my mom taking me to Bonkers Comedy Club, my dad would take me into the city and he would call ahead and say, Hey, my son's very young. I remember going at age 14, 15, 16 and say, we'll sit in the back. He knows all the swear words. He is very educated on profanity, loves all the cuss words. So could we just sit in the back? And my dad would take me at a young age and they would say, yes, it was a different time. This sounds like folklore of stand-up, but I used to go to stand-up comedy clubs very young, hang out in the back with my dad. And I remember seeing Bobby Slayton for the first time, the pit bull of comedy, just tear into the crowd. And then as I would grow up, age 15, 16, my dad loved Bobby Slayton, wanted to take me every time Bobby Slayton was in town. And then eventually we'd just be on the edge of the stage and he would maul me like a true pit bull of comedy. Just verbally attack me. It was great. If you don't know who Bobby Slayton is, it's weird that he didn't become even more famous. But really good comic. And then because it's 18 and up, I remember senior year of high school with a lot of my friends. We would go into the city all the time. I remember seeing a young guy named Dane Cook. When he was very young, Al Madrigal, when he was really young, 
remember seeing him. Joe Rogan was just talking about this. San Francisco used to have a nice comedy scene. Now, not at all. With the punchline closing, it'll just be Cobbs. And Cobbs is a cavernous room. Cobbs is not like one of these great clubs where you feel the intimacy with the comic and the crowd and the energy. Cobbs is like an arena, almost. Too much space. You don't want too much space. Most comics don't love arenas. They play arenas because they can. Can make that money. But the true comics, they like the little clubs, the little dingy clubs. But SF used to have the Purple Onion, the Holy City Zoo, Cobbs at the cannery when it was a small room, and then the punchline. And the punchline would get the big axe. How times have changed. And the story of the Holy City Zoo, I could do a whole podcast on that, but it's amazing. A young guy named Robin Williams being discovered by a talent scout down in L.A. Because the actor that was supposed to play Mork the alien on an episode of Happy Days, he bailed at the last minute, so they needed a fill-in. And they found this guy, Robin Williams, a Marin County guy from Redwood High, who was a complete maniac on stage. And as they brought him in to play Mork for an episode or two, then it spun off to Mork and Mindy. And then, oh, yeah, 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 that Robin Williams. Who became, what, one of the top five names in the history of comedy? So there's a lot of those little stories throughout San Francisco, but there will be no more of those stories. Right now, if you're a comic, you live in L.A. or New York. Those are your hubs. But SF, San Francisco really did used to have a scene. So with the punchline closing, it's kind of a sign of where San Francisco's going. Not to say San Francisco's not artsy at all anymore, but San Francisco, you talk about a 180. When you think of old San Francisco, you think about all the hippies coming out, the summer of love. And not just drugs, but good music. Okay, a lot of drugs, but good music. The commune living, get dirty in the park. Come along, follow the Grateful Dead, follow Janis Joplin. Most people know about the great history. San Francisco throughout the 60s, throughout the 70s, and then a lot of these people that came out from all around the United States, a lot of them became burnouts. And that's why one of the reasons, not the only reason, but there's such a homeless problem. A lot of these people just got strung out on acid. And LSD and PCP and magic mushrooms and all the many things that were causing them to dance and dance and dance on the psychedelic scene. So what's happened? Now San Francisco doesn't resemble that at all. At all. I don't feel like musicians are moving to San Francisco. Artists are moving to San Francisco nowadays. San Francisco 2.0, the tech boom has kind of removed some of that desirable culture life. Is it still desirable for many? Yeah, you probably have young kids all over the country right now moving to San Francisco because they have an idea for an app. They want to be in the Silicon Valley scene. The future software programmers of the world who are going to take us to new heights. Great, great. That's the world right now. But it's interesting to see how one city, can you think of any other city that has completely transformed its image into the hipster capital of the world? The plaid shirts, the handlebar mustaches, and the people that talk about beer like it is art. Oh, it's a floral citrus finish, and I find it to be very hoppy towards the nose. Shut up. Shut up. Anybody who talks about beer as if they're talking about the finest wines, and really anybody who's talking about wines at that level, should we just take a step back and say it's booze, it's alcohol, you like to drink? It's great marketing, isn't it? It's a great business model to make people talk about your product so much. Because you have so many different styles of ale. All these ale houses throughout San Francisco. Are people tired of them yet? Or are they still popular? I don't know. I'm just the guy sitting in front of a microphone ripping apart these ale houses that actually are a lot of fun. Okay. So gentrification. There you go. All these neighborhoods that used to have such charm and grit and character. They're all going to be extinct in about 30 years. All of them. Think about the 
most rugged areas of San Francisco. Hunter's Point, the Tenderloin. I wonder, is the Tenderloin going to be a nice area one day? Bayview, some rundown parts of the Mission District are being rebuilt. Times are changing, I'm telling you. I'm telling you, Beach Blanket Babylon, they're closing. Has anybody heard of that? The big parody stage show with the big hats and the big voices? Closing. Oh, but don't you worry. I got tickets for my mom's 70th. I got tickets. One more chance to dance. All right, I'm going to go shove my head into the freezer and cool off a little bit, but it's been a fun one. That's episode 58. All right, leave a rating on iTunes. Come on. This is the part where I plead with you. Tell a friend. Come on. Let's get big. Let's get t-shirts. Let's get tattoos. Let's get a condo together. Who's with me? Who's coming with me? Anybody? Anybody? Let's be Twitter friends. Even though I need to wean off that phone, let's be Twitter friends. You follow me at jrosenberg957. I follow you. Kind of sounds like stalking, right? You follow me, I'll follow you. Weird. All of these apps have a shelf life, right? Twitter's going to be gone one day and replaced with something, right? Facebook? Facebook's in the hands of our parents by now. So, goodbye. Snapchat? Goodbye soon, right? There's too many young people moving to San Francisco with the next best idea for us to be stagnant. There's nothing stagnant about this world of consumerism. Nothing. Every Christmas, there's going to be the next best great tech gadget to buy. The next best great electronic invention that you need. Isn't that weird? Only 365 days between every Christmas, and there's always the next best thing. Capitalism. Holy moly. Should we get into capitalism? Should we turn this into an economics podcast? You know you you want to. You know you have a little more time. You know you have a little more in your drive right now, or a little more in that dog walk, or you know that you're going to sleep right now, and my voice slowly brings you into R-E-M. Breathe in and out. Say goodbye to the day. Reflect on some moments. Show some gratitude. And good night. That's episode 58. It's in the books. I'll talk to you soon.